Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Dr. Rachel Skaggs, and I'm here with Molly Jo Burke and Aaron Hoppe to talk about our research into COVID-19 and its impact on artists during the first year of the pandemic. We'll go ahead and introduce ourselves and then get into our topic for today. Hi, I'm Molly Jo Burke, and I am a third-year PhD student at The Ohio State University, and I'm in the Arts Administration, Education, and Policy area. My background is that I am a practicing artist, and I continue to practice as an artist, and I am back in school trying to learn and seek answers about the artist's practice and their career paths in the visual arts field. That led me to working on this wonderful project. Hi, I'm Erin Hoppe. I am also a third-year PhD student in the Department of Arts Administration, Education, and Policy. Getting into my candidacy this semester, I'm researching the embodied experience of arts administration and how that impacts the field's policies and practices. I'm interested in that because I spent the last 15 years before coming back to school as an arts administrator in various capacities. I consider myself a maker of sorts, a dabble in creative writing, arts advocate, and budding art educator and academic. And again, I'm Rachel Skaggs. I'm the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Assistant Professor of Arts Management here at The Ohio State University. And I was really lucky this last year because I received a grant from the Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Fund at The Ohio State University to pursue a greater understanding of this emergent phenomenon of COVID-19 as it affects artists. This project started with that intent to find out what was happening to artists. And luckily, I was able to hire these two wonderful graduate research assistants. And we set out designing this project, carrying it out, and even coming to having publications come out by this point. So we've done a lot in the last year, and we're hoping to break down not only what our findings were, but also how this research process worked. What are our personal perspectives that inform the work that we're doing in terms of academics, arts administrators, and working artists? Also, how has our research changed in real time? We too are living through the pandemic and that has certainly affected the way that we've done our research. So we hope that people are interested in not only how artists were impacted, but on how you can do high quality, rigorous research about artists during an emergent phenomenon. So we'll get into it. So the first topic of conversation when we're thinking about how to study artists during the first year of COVID-19 is our actual research process. I'm a sociologist by training, but I also am really dedicated to my work having policy relevance and impact on artists themselves. I really want artists to have strong, sustainable careers and believe that research can give us a good framework for starting that. I would say that I was going into this research project with a sociological perspective and a mind toward policy relevance. The development of that process first looked like doing literature reviews, then recruiting potential interviewees, interviewing people, analyzing the research, and then using that research to develop survey questions that will then be fielded on the 2022 Strategic National Arts Alumni Project Survey. If you're not familiar with this organization, also known as SNAP, you can look at their website at snaparts.org and potentially participate in the survey. But when we get into how this actually worked, working with a partner like SNAP, starting from a perspective of this thing that is happening that 
no one knows anything about. We had quite a few steps. I wonder, Erin and Molly, if you two could speak to what parts of this process were particularly difficult, meaningful, relevant, or at least memorable to you after a year of doing this research. For me, I think the process of conducting a literature review was a really fascinating experience. In academia, we are so used to going back years and decades and finding all kinds of different people who talk about the subject that we're looking for. And in this case, we didn't really have that. We had real-time media policy documents, policy responses, people that were sharing their stories, but it wasn't there weren't journal articles or books that had been written about this. So we were looking at the New York Times and spaces like that to find sort of a grounding for what people were talking about in relations to artists, the creative sector, and responses to the pandemic. So just this real-time development as the situation unfolded was really fascinating. And then using those to develop our research protocol was both trying to serve the SNAP goals, trying to address our own interests as well. So using this opportunity and coming up with questions like, before COVID, tell me what a normal day would look like for you. What does a normal day look like for you now? How have interactions with others in your professional life changed? How have you had to shift the physical location where you do your work or have you had to? Trying to really extrapolate these big, broad ideas and bring them into something that was for the people that we would be speaking with still unfolding during that time. Yeah, and even just on that end, kind of making sure that those questions were relevant. And for me, the interesting part about this development process, coming from it from an arts background, where this was probably my first major research project, and I was just learning from stage one. So obviously, I'm in a graduate program, I've written papers and done research, but not as substantial as this and not as thinking at it from such a larger scope. And so understanding how to work as a team, how to try to organize all of these materials so that we could work on them together. Also making sure that connecting the literature review to a bibliography, making sure that somebody read it, put the notes in, keeping track of that process so that the information that I was taking in and putting out as a summary was something that my teammates could also access was really important and a really interesting thing that you don't necessarily think about all the time, especially as we get into our own little niche areas. But doing something this large, that was a big impact for me. And then also working through just keeping on top of what we had looked at and then kind of coming back and revisiting. That was a really interesting part of how to fold in prior knowledge to this new knowledge. You know, it was a really amazing experience. I thought so too. I think that something that stands out for me as a new faculty member, I had done my own dissertation research, but I had never led a project with graduate research assistants before. I know how to do a project on my own. I know how to do these things, but having to and getting to communicate these with with students with you all who are you know already good at what you do you're already professionals delegating and then also kind of working in a team where we all have voice i think that that's something that is both challenging and also really beneficial for the style of work that we did so having people to bounce ideas off of and also just the power of our collective time spent on this so the structure of this this team is that each graduate research assistant had 10 hours a week paid to spend on this project 
So collectively, we were probably spending 30 hours a week between the three of us working on this, which really moved along pretty quickly. I think that the volume of what we were able to accomplish in a year was large. <laughs> and that it's something that it shows it showed me how much effort it really takes to do a large scale project outside of independent research. And like all of you who are listening, also adjusting to having our own lives being impacted by the pandemic as well. So we were all shifting to learning online to teaching online, figuring out how to go to the grocery store, which would be things that we would talk to our interview participants about. But having sort of adding this extra project on top and navigating that during everybody learned how to navigate differently, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I do think they were, it was interesting to learn moments where we were just like, we have to stop doing this and move on to something else. And I think knowing when that saturation point was, was kind of challenging because everything was changing all the time. But I think that we worked really well balancing knowing when and Dr. Skaggs really helped to balance when it was like, we need to move on to the next thing. So <laughs> and when Molly says saturation, if people aren't familiar with that term, it's a social scientific term that comes from grounded theory, that basically just means we're getting enough of the same information that we believe it to be reliable. And I think that we did find research findings that were reliable along the way. So I wonder if we can transition to give just a few top level findings that we got from our 66 interviews with artists working during the first year of COVID. After interviewing all of these artists from a variety of different fields, we had people in fields like visual arts, performing arts, quite a few teachers of art across many different disciplines, arts administrators, retired people, early career people, students, our sample ran the gamut. I think that we can can say that we have a very interesting sample of 66 artists. So what did we find out from these people? How has COVID affected them? And what were the issues that were most important to them? One of the things that we really focused on with our first putting out our findings was focusing on resources and how that differed from established patterns that were prior to the pandemic. And we did find that there were actually a lot of things that artists still needed that they needed prior to the pandemic, but how they used it shifted. And then we also found that individuals who might have had one resource over another or access to certain things were at an, a significant advantage during this time. And then those that did not have access to those things were at a much higher disadvantage. So one of the main thing was that artists do need their network and that in isolation, they were finding some very interesting ways of accessing their network. Yes, they turned a lot to social media. There was no way around that. But then how they were using social media to expand their network was very interesting during this time, um, using Instagram to sell work, using their websites, connecting more with online resources, utilizing webinars, and just accessing all of these different ways to gain information. We also noticed that space became this really premium resource, which it was always a premium category before. But the fact that if somebody had access to a space that was within their control, that they weren't locked out of, that they were able to be socially distant from individuals, that those individuals with that resource, they were able to continue their practice. They were able to maybe even get ahead on their practice. And then we had individuals who were working from home and 
maybe they had family at home with them and had to deal with caregiving. And those individuals were impacted greatly because they did not have the space. And that includes time or physical space in many ways. So those were some of our findings, along with access to technology as a resource, Wi-Fi being obviously a very important thing during this time of isolation and trying to still connect with one another and also still to work. Probably most importantly that I'm sure somebody will be able to talk more about this, just the impact between the different creative fields that performing arts and artistic genres that need access to audience, physical audience or people, that suddenly became really challenging. And that resource of actual people was a really big deal. I wonder, Molly, if you can speak to two of those examples that really stuck out to me, or perhaps introduce some other examples. I'm thinking particularly of a movement artist Mm -hmm. who um, had to shift her programming online and what technology as a resource was for her. And then also the glass artist who really needs a team, right? There's Mm -hmm. a physical plant and a team that's needed to do that, that work. Yeah, so I actually have a quote here from one of the artists that we interviewed, a dance and movement artist who... Uh, She quote says, I didn't have a proper microphone and then my computer internal speaker blew out and then not being able to see me properly because of my lighting sucked. And, you know, people were not willing to come to my online workshop because somebody else had better lighting, somebody else had better acoustics. And this is in reference to her trying to shift her practice to a more entrepreneurial component of actually teaching and offering workshops online for a small amount of money for attendees and hoping to accumulate a larger audience. And that moment of experiencing issues with having access to different resources of technology or equipment and just feeling the frustration of that moment really was a big impact for her. Another artist that we interviewed was a glass artist. She brings up just the fact that, and her quote is, with glass blowing, you have to have people around. You have to be really close to other people It's not very COVID safe unless you were in a pod or something. I do have a couple friends that we trust each other and we have been blowing glass, but very minimally. Like I think we blew glass maybe twice during the pandemic. And so again, having artists that have to deal with calculating the risk of their social interaction in order to get their work done. And that's a really big component of what our interviewees faced. Absolutely. Both of the research finding sets that we'll talk about right now are available as data briefs on the SNAP website. So Erin, what about you? How have the the findings kind of stood out to you in terms of what was most important from our research so far? Another thing that we looked at was how COVID-19 impacted the needed skills of arts graduates. And that's something that SNAP, S-N-A-A-P, is very interested in, in the work that they do. And so we've known for some time that there are skill gaps that exist for arts graduates in terms of what they need. And the COVID pandemic really demonstrated how artists were resilient with the skills that they had developed through their programs and throughout their life and who they are. And then also challenges to different adaptations that they would need to do. And I would say two of the big things that were found in our research was the need for technology and interpersonal skills, those soft skills. We all know how much technology was necessary, and this was definitely true for artists, art educators, art administrators who were shifting their entire work practices. There was a really interesting story 
of a music educator who was teaching classes online who found out that he, he was listening to the recordings that his students had made and found out that the microphones on tablets and phones do not collect the lower decibels megahertz. And so all of these songs just sounded off. So he reached out to his network to see if they were having the same problem. And all they needed to do was get different microphone adjustments. So sort of this real-time thinking, reacting. At one point, we've talked about these adaptations as kind of like a Band-Aid and then having positive outcomes through this Band-Aid process. But definitely technology was necessary for all of these arts graduates, whether it was to continue sharing their work with social networks on social media, or we have another, somebody in musical theater who said, I was still writing music. I was still doing sound effects. What I would have done pre-pandemic. It was just the medium in which I was working was different. So there was certainly a shift in learning some new skills and figuring out how to collaborate in that way, which wasn't an in-person environment with the same sort of technology. So Aaron, I also wonder about the soft skills that you're talking about and how the kind of modulation of soft skills and technology come together. If we're all living socially isolated lives and our lives and our work exist online, how did collaboration or teaching or other types of of interaction happen in this space? These skills that were developed during COVID-19 by artists and art educators were often complementary and layered. So for instance, effectively teaching students on a digital platform meant new technological skills and new interpersonal relationship skills and working collaboratively. We had a teaching artist who said that he had to learn, quote, how to connect with students on a little screen, how to read their face and their body language, how their day is going and that sort of thing. We heard from those working in, in higher education who talked about the emotional work of maintaining these social ties that as a leader in his department, you know, he was charged with sort of being that support system and leading with a good example. But he said, you know, it's just really hard. Everyone is sad all the time. And they're focused, they're worried about sort of their soul and their reason for being. And so the interpersonal skills that these participants were able to display and use during this difficult time were really important for maintaining, you know, purpose and productivity both for themselves and for the colleagues that they were working with. Absolutely. We're really excited to already have these two pieces of research out, but our work is in no way done. (laughs) I think you would both agree that we're just ramping up at this point. So since our work is ongoing, we're still moving through all of this data. We've spent this summer analyzing the data and going through what's called a flexible coding process to really systematically inquire about the research questions that we have. So while we do have this research already out about skills and resources that were needed and acquired during the pandemic, we have a number of projects ongoing. We'll be working on research related to spaces and places. Again, this issue of we're all living socially isolated or at least socially changed lives and what do the physical spaces or digital spaces look like in those this kind of new world. We're also working on a number of other areas of inquiry and I think that we'll just keep probably generating more ideas for quite a while. The one that stands out to me that I'm really excited to work on right now is related to the intrinsic benefits that people have in the arts. So 
One of the economic arguments for why artists stay in artistic work, even though they don't make very much money, which you know we could get into, and maybe that's an overgeneralization. But when we're looking at that paradox of artistic workers not making a lot of money, but still liking and wanting to do their jobs, we think about the intrinsic benefits they get, including autonomy and creativity. And it really stood out to me how that was gone for these people during the first year of COVID. So many people talked about in their interviews not feeling creative, not wanting to practice, not wanting to move forward with their work, even after years and years of a successful career. So that's something that I'm really interested in digging into and and writing about as we move on with this process. It really was a mix. There were people who felt incredibly motivated to have this time. Somebody described the pandemic as a horrifying gift, this ability of time to be able to regroup with old projects that they had left behind. And then others lost their motivation because they didn't have anything that they were working towards at that time. So I think there may have been something for artists that there's often that I'm working towards this next project, this next show, this next event that just sort of disappeared and was a really hard motivational factor to get around. Yeah, I was really floored often by how this kind of psychic shock seemed to occur with individuals. But I guess I shouldn't have been because I felt like I myself was going through a lot of shock and wondering about what was going to help motivate me to move forward. And I think some of that, when you're interviewing these individuals, and you're experiencing all of their different emotions, and trying to capture you know, just what's happening in real time in some fashion with the way that the pandemic was unfolding. The sense of individuals who were able to generate that optimistic core and keep working and had a little bit of maybe they had the space. And so suddenly that little present of or that gold nugget of this like access to the ability to be creative allowed them to thrive. And then other individuals did not seem to have that kind of access. And I think that was both the like amazing thing to come into research and understand, but also it was, it's hard to put my finger on it, but there was something about just with each individual sensing their optimism or their anxiety and how to, how to put all of that into like actual findings is something that I have really enjoyed learning about. You make me think of a couple of really interesting things that kept coming up for me. The first one was this feeling of an identity crisis that so many people talked about that you may have experienced yourself, listeners. So it was this sort of either what am I doing with my life? Is this the path that I want to go down? I mean, we oft- we talk about artists as resilient and creative and they're happy to be doing this. And that's true. They are. They were. But there was a very deep concern about their current status, their future status, whether or not they were ready for that. Or there was really a deepening of their passion for being in the creative sector and doing this work and just kind of throwing themselves into it and taking this opportunity to run and and be motivated and create and go with it. So it was this very, it was a very interesting back and forth play that just kind of depended on person, who they are, what they, you know, what they believed in, the sector that they were working on, whether or not there was some sort of, the performing arts was certainly harder hit than some other sectors, which also makes me think, so we did interviews for six months, give or take, and this, a a real shift in the way that 
inter- so we asked very personal questions during the interviews, financial questions, personal well-being. Did they know anyone with COVID or have it themselves? And so that was we we navigated that. But early on in the process, interviews in 2020, there was a lot more pessimism, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty and not knowing reflective of society. But then when you moved into 2020, there was more of it, what more of an optimism, more of a maybe the vaccines will help. We can get back into it. People were looking at in the summer, we can probably start performances again, whether or not they were responding to the broader social issues going on which we did not specifically ask about, but were brought up on their own. But it was this this shift, this arc um, was very interesting to observe as we felt the same way, I think. Yeah, Yeah. I think, Molly, you have um, some good kind of reflections on having to pull people back, right? Like pulling your interviewees back to what time we were talking about. Yeah, I think that was actually really challenging because I would one of our questions, which is really important, is trying to get them to talk about that first shift. Did you shift space? What did you do when this first happened? How did your practice change? And once we got to 2021, suddenly they just wanted to talk about their future projects, because instead of being kind of stagnant and waiting, as we all were during the winter of 2020, there was suddenly this energy. And I think that feeling that in the interviews was really interesting. And there was a certain point where I just started to almost give up, but I would sometimes summarize, did this happen to you? So, But I do think that it was so impactful to interview people. And I would get to this through this long list of things that they were working on. And it was like, oh, wow, this is really amazing. You're really busy. And sometimes the individual would say, yeah, well, if you spoke to me a week ago, it would have been very different. And so I think that that is a real clue into how fast things were shifting because people did want to get back to being active. And and I think that Aaron said that optimism shift was really apparent. You know, there was suddenly a little bit more hope on the horizon. Yeah, that's something even now moving into another research phase, which is developing the SNAP survey questions about people's experiences with the pandemic when the survey is not supposed to go out until fall 2022. Being reflective about what that was like in March 2020, I think it's not intuitive. I think it's something that can be really difficult to remember and take seriously once you've seen not the end of the story, right? But like once you've seen that narrative arc play out and you know you were okay or you know you weren't okay, it can be difficult to reflect back that far and give an accurate answer. There were also a lot of people who in the process, we're sharing a lot of personal information and acknowledging their challenges or privileges or whatever it may be, who at the end would say, thank you for listening. This was honestly a moment of an hour of therapy for me. And that was, it felt very humbling and very, very emotional, I think, for us as researchers to be in this process, to give them this space to share. And I think a lot of them really appreciated that opportunity to kind of say what had been on their mind or had been thinking or journaling about, but to get it out to somebody. That's really interesting, too, because when we go through our IRB process, so our ethics agreement, one of the things you have to answer with qualitative research is, are you going to harm people with what you're asking them? And the types of questions that we ask potentially could be emotionally disturbing to some people. If you have to reflect to another person about your 
financial status or about feeling like your dreams are not going to work out the way you thought they were, it could be really disturbing. But as you're saying, Aaron, it seems like most, inter- maybe not most, some interviewees expressed that it was really therapeutic for them. And I don't think that we had anyone who who was disturbed or who expressed any kind of dis-ease with the questions. But I can say with my past project about songwriters, the same thing. People would say this feels like therapy. And I know my mentor also has had people cry in his office during interviews, processing what it means to them to pursue an artistic career. I don't think any of us had anyone asked to end the interview. I didn't have anybody asked to end, but I did have somebody asked to not participate. I think this might be a good time to kind of reflect more on the research process now that we've talked about some of our findings and the importance of the information that we uncovered thanks to these 66 people, maybe moving into talking about our own perspectives on the work and how we work together as a team. So I wonder what reflections you all have on that. Maybe first off, thinking of ourselves as researchers during COVID at home on Zoom. (laughs) So doing interviews on Zoom was a really interesting way to have this very engaged, focused moment with another person and being able to pop into the space that we've all been interacting with and engaging with for part of the pandemic. So it was at least familiar to almost every person I interviewed. But it was interesting to kind of navigate that social moment, but in that digital space and still try to get all of my questions through, read their body language, and then making sure that I was responding to them in a way that would help facilitate that conversation because I wanted the participant to feel comfortable with sharing an honest reflection on their what experience that they had with COVID. But then whenever there were technology issues, it's it was so interesting how it just completely changed the whole interview. <laughs> it was like, it went from feeling really comfortable to being I was getting all of this great data to feeling like sometimes the answers were a little stunted, me being concerned that I didn't quite get something. And even when I transcribed those interviews afterwards, I was like, oh, I can tell which one we had technology issues with versus which ones we didn't. I had one halfway through where the internet just cut out and I lost that person. Yes, it was a challenge to be sure. I think one of the really interesting, as we're sitting here together recording this podcast, I think this is probably the fifth time that we've been together as researchers since we started last fall. And so that this real this apart together as researchers was a really interesting, challenging, I feel like it's only going to get easier from here, you know, in future research projects. But I would say we worked very well as a team staying in communication, navigating our own what file server are we going to where is that file version but that's pretty standard i think for any teams working together for me the ability to do so many interviews i feel has made me a much more confident researcher i mean we talk about it theorize it in class all the time and dr skaggs inviting us into this opportunity where we got to interview two dozen interviewees each um just to really i can remember my first interview was little rocky, uh, you know, and then by the end, it's okay, you can laugh. (laughs) Everyone's is just like in a podcast, you don't want to hear your own voice, you don't want to hear you're messing up, you don't want to hear that you giggle too much. Maybe that's just personal, but (laughs) it's hard. Yeah, it is. But 
by the end, I felt a lot more confident even just navigating the interview protocol and did we get to this question? I better be sure to ask this because I keep forgetting to because they jump around or they answer things in advance. But I think it was a really unmatched, hands-on, practical experience that if you're in academia, I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to bring in your students for these sort of real bring them into your research process because there's nothing like that hands-on learning, whether it's a small component or a larger component. We were lucky to be part of the full component of this research work, though Dr. Skaggs, of course, did the vast majority of the work. Uh, But we were there for all of it to see it happen and to be able to be supportive in different ways. It was very beneficial as a student. Yeah, I can't reiterate that enough. I feel like I'm always sending Dr. Skaggs thank you notes like, thank you for having me on this project because I've learned so much. It just really professionalized. It drew the curtain back on a lot of things that, you know, like, how do you do that? And especially coming from it as an artist, the studio is a very different place than the academic world. There's a lot of similarities. There is crossover in what each of those categories happens to fulfill within your career, but how you fulfill those things are very different. And I think that for me, it was just, it was just so beneficial to have that revealed to me in the way that it would normally be done as a professional versus doing it through coursework. Because let's be honest, through coursework, there's not nearly as much buy-in. And at least with having this be a project that I knew would come to fruition, would, would be, you know, published in some way, would be something that went to a conference. I really had that moment to be like, this is real work. And paying attention to how things were done was so helpful. So it also felt really, sorry, you can go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yes, it is real work. (laughs) I think that is something that, you know, you all did a, a huge amount of work. And it really is pulling the curtain back. Because as a professional, this is my job, right? This is, you know, at least 40% of what I'm evaluated on is my research. And I think that outside of the classroom is the best way to learn that because in a classroom setting, it's not really set up to produce research in the way that a professor produces research. And so I think that I wish I could teach everyone in this way. It's something that seems really natural, right? Like a project based around inquiry and creating new knowledge. And that's 100% what we did. There was nothing out there about this when we started. Like Aaron was saying, it's just emergent reports from the New York Times, maybe the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and our own kind of anecdotes from the field, from what was happening to the people around us and to ourselves. It's really amazing what you can do in a year. And I don't think that we could have done that in a classroom setting. I think the other component that made it so meaningful as a student and an academic and as an arts administrator and as part of this team was just, we all want our research to be important and timely and pertinent, you know, all these different things. But there was something, a weight, but in a good way, like maybe like a weighted blanket kind of way, this, this feeling that this research is important and it mattered. And we all three care about the future of the sector and the policies that can support the sector as did our interview participants who all expressed, you know, they were they wanted to participate to be able to contribute to this body of knowledge to help the sector and to help arts professionals. And so just the timeliness of this research was a really impactful component of being part of it. Not to say that looking back at some sort, you know, other research isn't interesting and timely as well, but 
life unfolded in real time and we were researching and all of these things that have been said, but it, it just made it that much more special. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. <laughs> I agree, though, Erin. I think that the weight that you're talking about, it does feel important in a way that perhaps other research questions that I have, not that they're less important, but that the timeliness of getting information out there is so important, was so important to me in this process. And I think that we had an interesting kind of process for that, because as we were doing this research, we had conference presentations, data briefs, ongoing kind of reportings out on this. I think that that's maybe atypical, right? We didn't wait until we were done with the project to start talking about the project. And I think that that's challenging in some ways. We don't want to overstate our findings or overgeneralize from too few interviews. But it's something that I think we all have been learning together, learning to do this work and learning to live during COVID at the same time. Yeah, I definitely think that that was a really challenging point to be because as you're doing the interviews and a part of the process is actually you, you know, you've put together the materials and then you do the interviews and then you go back and transcribe the interviews and then you go and code the interviews. So there's a certain moment where you do know things start to come together in this way that you know some of this stuff, but then you have to go back and cite it within the materials. And I think that we we're lucky in that as a team, we were able to be so deeply immersed in this process. And with Aaron and I doing a lot of the interviews, and then being able to report back to Dr. Skaggs about what we felt were becoming these touch points. And then as the transcription process unfolded, again, taking a moment to actually maybe I was doing Aaron's interviews, and she was taking on mine. So there was this, we got to really deeply know the material in a way that I think was so helpful. And now I really know the material after coding it. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I think that we can say that, that we all know each other's interviewing styles now. I think we can read when the other person is going to move to the next question. I think you really do get to learn to kind of think together to really work in tandem, which is, is very different from doing one's own research that's not in community and not part of a research team. And in some ways, that makes it more difficult, right? You must be really kind of well documented. You really, I think that's something upon reflection that we've all said, like, we needed to keep better documentation about who's touching each interview at each time, right? I opened it, I read it, here's the themes, like even having that sort of process in place was something that we didn't do that I would encourage other research teams out there to keep as many memos as possible to facilitate collaborative work, because collaborative work takes work. <laughs> you can't um, you can't just do it all yourself. And that requires quite a bit of meta effort. Another big meta effort, I think, as team, when you're working in a team doing this kind of work, particularly when we got to the coding phase, I mean, certainly during the protocol development phase, but this coding phase of aligning our understandings of how each, how we were interpreting both our inductive and deductive codes, like resilience. Are we each going to code resilience in the same way, right? Are we get when you say media arts, do I interpret that as design arts, right? Really spending time, I think those were a couple of the times where we actually met in person to like really hash out what does this mean so that when we moved into the analysis, we would be on the same page and we would have coded similarly. And we did the interrelator reliability, which was actually a pretty fun experiment. So really just any collaborative effort taking that time because you're not on your when we go 
when Molly and I step into our dissertation work, when Dr. Skaggs goes back to her personal research work, you know, we'll be on our own to do that. And yes, we'll have to explain it to our committee, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's something about having to be really clear about definitions and intentions and meanings. Yeah, I think that was actually one of the things Aaron and I, we chat a lot and try not to take up too much of Dr. Skagg's time. But um, <laughs> so it's like, what do you think she wants with this? <laughs> and then uh, sometimes I'm like, I had it right. And then other times I'm like, nope, you got it, Aaron. <laughs> Part of that challenge, too, is interdisciplinary work. We are all coming to this. We're in the same department, right? This isn't the first time we've worked together. You all took my research methods class. And yet, we're still doing all this translational work for one another, which, again, is more meta effort, but I think really valuable and something that pays off at having the different perspectives that can really inform not only the academic side of it, but the policy relevance and importance for the field. To touch on that, though, that's another really important thing that I learned about and I mean, I, I knew about it in this in some way, but to really focus on that as part of the process, really thinking about where these things were going to live in the end, and then working backwards about what were we looking for to some degree. And so I really appreciate you bringing that in as a component that you were very focused on talking to us about like, well, where is this going? And so this is the framework for that theory for this area. And I think navigating that is definitely not something I would have done without bringing in that knowledge from your background and your experience. I'd like to end our conversation with a question about the future. We've really been digging into this one year, this 2020 to 2021, the first year of the COVID pandemic. But what will you take from this? Does this relate to your other work? Or how do you see yourself kind of moving forward after this project? So for me, I think There were definitely elements of what I heard from our participants that impact how I think about art practice and how your life influences your artistic practice and that kind of career path. And so this element of caregiving and how that impacts your ability to move forward in your career is just a really important part of my own research. Coming from an autobiographical standpoint, I am a female artist and I am actually also a mother. And so how that has impacted my choices and what my day-to-day life is like, but also hearing from participants who are parents going through the pandemic and how that caregiving component impacted their choices and what they could and couldn't do during a pandemic, but also how it might move forward during this time. And then I have also really thought about how big my research can be for my dissertation. So as I move through candidacy this semester and into my dissertation, my project has actually gotten a lot larger, even though I know it's a lot of work, knowing that having that amount of interviews could really provide me with much more data and be able to give me something to work with that would be really substantial. And so instead of doing six to 10 interviews, I really want to try to accomplish 20 to 25 and just know that maybe I'll be paying for more school. (laughs) But I do think that knowing my research could be more impactful is really important. And uh, I'm looking forward to using the processes I learned in that way. I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I should also probably say... So my dissertation research will be on the career paths of female identifying um, artists who work with glass. And so really honing in on that area, 
that field that actually doesn't have a lot of academic research written about it. And so I'm hoping that I can bring some insight into the the glass the glass art world. So wonderful. Well, Molly, I think like you, I've now expanded my number of interviews that I plan to conduct. I do come from an arts administration background. I spent a lot of years leading an organization. So I had initially come to this program thinking a lot about demographics and who the field of arts administrators were. And as COVID hit and as things started happening, I stopped thinking about numbers and I started thinking about bodies and the way that these statistics are real people. And throughout these interviews, it really reinforced that the an embodied experience of of life and of our, our profession and our career does matter. And it does impact the way that we choose to proceed in our personal and professional lives. And so as I look at this sort of embodied experience of arts administration, it, this research has informed that. The other thing that really happened during this process was, you know, at the end of every survey, you fill out demographic questions. But as an interview process, we asked open-ended questions. Instead of, you know, giving them options, we gave them the option of describing their race, ethnicity, gender, you know, these things all on their own. And it was a fascinating process to hear people talk through whether or not they're a member of an LGBT community, whether or not they have a disability, whether or not they lived in an urban, suburban, rural space. So I'm looking forward to working with Dr. Skaggs this coming year and and in parallel to my dissertation about how people responded to these open-ended demographic questions and what kind of implications that has for the field of arts administration, the way that we do work as researchers and the way that we think about the people that are participating and their nested identities and how we try to put them into these little boxes. Like we interviewed X number of white people and X number of women. And so I'm really looking forward to that. I think that this capacity to, of course, write about the work, to present about the work, to have this podcast. I'm looking forward to joining the ranks of academia someday to help, you know, future students get inspired and make research personally meaningful, to make research to practice more closer together, this complicated relationship that research and practice have. It's just been a great opportunity to really have reinforcements and to shift my thinking totally. I did think it was funny today. I was talking to my sophomore level students and I was like, you all need to get on Zotero right now, <laughs> trying to uh, implement some some good workflow habits for them early on. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if we had all started using Zotero when we were in college? <laughs> it might be terrifying to know how many things we've read since, you know, that is true. Grade 13, now grade 20. <laughs> I think for me, obviously, moving forward from this project for me looks like continuing to manage this project in some ways. I have applied for a grant. Maybe there will be more follow-up interviews to come. And then also the SNAP survey will have some really excellent quantitative data to work from in just a few short years. But other than that, I do see this fitting into my larger research trajectory. So I study careers in the arts, and my goal is to help people have sustainable, good careers. I don't believe that people should be seen as starving artists, and certainly they shouldn't be starving artists. So I think understanding the structures and impediments that could get in the way of a good career, that's that's my goal. And this research certainly contributes to that. But I anticipate that moving forward, 
my other research questions will will contribute to similar issues. And I look forward to wherever that ends up taking me. I'm sure it'll be a really good place. (laughs) (laughs) I'll read it. (laughs) I'll definitely read it. (laughs) Great. Well, I think that wraps us up. Thank you so much, Molly Joberg and Aaron Hoppe. Thank you, Dr. Rachel Skaggs, for your leadership and mentorship. Thanks to the College Art Association for having us. And thank you, listeners. Yay.